Good morning, everybody. I'm hoping that you can all hear me. Um, can you make some audible sign if you can? Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, because the lights are down and so I cannot see you, which is a little bit disconcerting, so I don't know what you're thinking. Um, <laughs> or whether you're liking it. Uh, but I've only just started, so let's proceed. Um, sorry to be a couple of moments late getting this, getting this loaded up. Um, so, in case like me, you are so overwhelmed by all the different things that are going on today, uh, you mightn't have uh, remembered the title of this one. <laughs> so I, I checked this morning, and it is Anniversaries, Feasts and Commemoration in the Middle Ages. So I hope that that's the one that you signed up for and, and, and that you will enjoy it. So the theme of this year's Open Day is that we are now celebrating 135 years of lifelong learning here in Oxford, which is a wonderful thing, um, given especially that so many other departments for continuing education are no longer with us. So I'm very proud to be talking to you from here in Oxford and that we're doing it. More generally, it seems to me that people do like the idea of uh, commemoration, um, the idea of remembering something together uh, rather than on our own. And just as our individual memories make us the individual people that we are, as well as those one or two things one would rather not remember, um, so our collective or shared memory makes us into the communities that we are, and there are many different kinds of community of which each of us individually forms a part. Uh, so I hope that your shared experience of today will be something that uh, makes you feel part of our department, however long a time you are going to be so associated. The thing is, somebody has to come up with the idea of what to commemorate, and we all have to, as it were, agree to do it. Um, I don't mean, like me, volunteer to give a talk on Open Day, but we all have to agree that the thing that we're called upon to commemorate is something that we actually do want to share in together. And therefore, I am very glad that um, there are so many people who have come to today's Open Day. The point is, you have to get it right, and you have to strike a chord among people in order to get your the commemoration to work properly. So all these thoughts um, inspired me to think about and share with you uh, the medieval ways that existed of commemorating and celebrating um, and what their purpose was. And once I began to think about it I, I, uh, and plan, I realized that actually we don't need a 45-minute talk, we need a book. <laughs> <laughs> Watch this space. Um, but the thing is, I think you'd actually need lots of books because um, medieval forms of commemoration seem to infiltrate, be part of so many different aspects of medieval life. Most centrally, I would say, uh, medieval Christianity itself was a particularly ritualized way of practicing religion. The central ritual in the Catholic Church was the Mass. And the Mass, the trans transubstantiation, the making of the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ, 
was in itself an act of commemoration, a terribly important one. Um, the moment where Jesus Christ in his last night on earth uh, instructed his disciples to do what he was doing in remembrance of him and always to do it. And as a result of that, the Mass became uh, the, the, the central Christian act of shared worship. You had to be a priest in order to celebrate the Mass, and the word was celebrate. And um, if you were a priest, you, you had to do it. So there are obligations on both sides. For people who attended Mass, the idea is that you would hear it, but you wouldn't necessarily receive communion. You wouldn't take the bread and wine or the body and blood. At a church council of 1215, it was said that you had to communicate, you had to receive uh, Holy Communion, and you had to make an act of confession at least once a year. So that gives you a sense of what people were obliged to do. It turned out that Easter was a natural time at which people would do that. It was the greatest feast of the medieval church. I visit churches a lot, as often as my family will allow me to do so. <laughs> Unlike some, I think they're quite grateful when sometimes churches are locked. But, um, <laughs> oh dear, Mum, we are sorry. <laughs> uh, let's move on. Um, but what is the most wonderful thing about living in Oxfordshire is that so many of our medieval parish churches are still standing and are still open. And you can go and see and you can imagine what it might have been like to um, join in the acts of, of celebration that took place there. What is diff difficult to perhaps get one's head around is that people would, would go, would attend Mass, but wouldn't actually understand in any great detail the liturgy itself, because so much of the Mass was said in and sung in Latin. And so you have important symbolic moments during the Mass, uh, which are, are, are part of the ritual, to give people a sort of signal, a signpost, as to where, uh, where the priest was during the course of the service. And so that is why you have the ringing of the bell when the elevation of the host that the, 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 the consecrated bread was going to take place. And there is a great debate among historians. Historians, you might notice, always engage in debates, but we have to, you know, to keep, you know, to kind of keep people's interest up and to keep our jobs going. You know, we have to kind of disagree among ourselves and then we will, uh, we will keep the business of history alive. Uh, but w there is a great debate among historians about the importance of squints and the purpose of squints in medieval churches, those sort of little, um, uh, slit-shaped uh, apertures in the church fabric, are they there so that people in all parts of the church can actually see the elevation of the host? Um, one other argument is that there are several masses that might be going on at the same time within the same church, so the idea is that you would uh, coordinate that moment of consecration. The chancel uh, the, 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 the part of the church where the priest celebrates the Mass is separated from the nave where the laity are, so that's another reason why you would need to have squints so that you, you could see through. One 
uh, view might be, and perhaps a post-Reformation view, that there was so much um, attention paid to that moment of elevation that it actually stopped people in their own private devotions or from paying attention to um, other aspects of their religious worship. And it was, it was said in the 15th century um, that the... Uh, there was a complaint by a preacher that the people had run away from his sermon so that they could, uh, he, they'd gone away to a neighbouring church uh, so that they could watch the elevation of the host so that they were less apparently interested in the spoken word of God and much more interested in the visual symbol. So it just shows you how important it was. Masses would have been available to in some parishes every day, but with many people's burden of work, it would not have been possible to go to Mass all the, all the time. Um, a constitution in the Diocese of Norwich in 1257 said that priests had to pray the, the Creed and the Lord's Prayer every single day with their parishioners. Um, we don't know whether that actually took place. We know that there are lots of problems with absentee priests in certain parishes, so that would have been an ideal, not necessarily a reality for many. When, however, you look at the rituals of the great households, those of royalty, of the nobility, of bishops and abbots, it's very clear that the regular saying of the Mass is built into the framework of everyday life in the large household. It's part of its rhythm. So that is the Mass. The year as a whole, the medieval year as a whole, is punctuated with the great feasts of the Church, the key ones being Christmas and Easter, and there are others associated with, with the most important saints, the Annunciation, or sometimes called Lady Day, on the 25th of March, which actually marked the beginning of the new year uh, when the birth of Christ was announced to the Virgin Mary, the feast of St. John the Baptist on the 24th of June. And those are the, the feasts that are universal in the church and that everybody is aware of and celebrates in one way or another. And then there are long periods of fasting, which are also part of the church season, uh, Advent, prior to Christmas, and Lent which is prior to Easter. And indeed, the medieval chronicles that have come down to us, the way monks uh, noted the passing of time was because they were calculating when Easter would fall in any given year because it varied according to the cycles of the moon um, and when Christmas had been. So those greater feasts of the church celebrating the life of Christ in particular and the particular events in it were universal. But then there are also celebrations which are primarily local or national or regional. And those of you who are from Oxford, and I imagine many of you are as you're, as you're here, uh, will know of the local cult of St. Frideswide walking to the railway station. I did notice that it's now called Frideswide Square. Um, there is was, there is, the cult of Berinus, St. Berinus at Dorchester, even though we are told by Bede that the bones of Berinus are actually at Winchester, but the monks of Dorchester wanted it to be very clear that the bones of Berinus were still at Dorchester so that they could attract pilgrims. 
uh, a long way away from here, but somewhere where I've done quite a lot of work. Uh, Durham, the, the cult of St Cuthbert at Durham has, has two feasts, one in March and one in September, and, and his feast days there were, was, were strongly celebrated. So not only was, was some saints' days celebrations local, or regional, there were others which actually were introduced over a period of time as new saints were canonized or new events were celebrated in the post-death life of the saint. If you followed that, <laughs> doing well. So a saint's life in the Middle Ages was often more interesting after he died or she had died and a key thing is if the bones are moved from one place to another and then you can have a feast celebrating the translation of the bones of so and so and it's another way it's, it's a way of publicizing the fact that you've got somebody's bones a particularly uh, important English national saint is um, Thomas Beckett and he's an example of uh, a political saint, a relatively new saint in the Middle Ages, uh, murdered in Canterbury Cathedral in 1170, and very soon afterwards, I don't know if there's a kind of world record of speed of canonization, um, but he would have been in the running for it, because canonized very soon after his scandalous murder. And soon Canterbury became a, a, a destination for pilgrims. And what's interesting is that what people seem to... The actual action of pilgrimage, of, of walking to Canterbury, seems to be a replication of the way in which St. Thomas himself, or Thomas Becket as he then was, returned to his cathedral church of Canterbury and that was the fatal act that actually caused his murder. He'd spent a lot of his time as archbishop in exile in France, but the moment of his return was when he made his, his, his sort of final step to martyrdom. And you, these are tin badges. These are medieval postcards, really. They're, they're, they're a souvenir. They're a sign that you'd actually gone to the place. So in particular, the one on the left-hand side is St. Thomas riding to Canterbury. So just as St. Thomas rides to Canterbury, and, and, and this is him uh, on, on board ship um, returning from exile uh, in France. Um, so the, the special narrative moments in a saint's life are commemorated in th these are just a, a, a couple of little tin badges from the Museum of London um, but there are all sorts of other ways in, in which moments in a saint's life are remembered and as a result of that remembering they're consolidated and belief is affirmed You may know that Thomas, Thomas Beckett was murdered on the orders of Henry II, sort of. He just let slip that it would be quite nice for him if Thomas Beckett wasn't around anymore. That's not quite the same as saying, do him in, is it? But, you know, it's uh, getting there. So 
medieval kings had rather a medieval English kings had rather an um, uh, an awkward relationship with the cult of Saint Thomas Becket at Canterbury. So the cult of Edward the Confessor at Westminster was promoted as a kind of you know royal answer. You know this is this is this is the actual king who is a, a saint as well. This is the shrine of. St. Edward the Confessor in Westminster Abbey. And Henry III, in the middle of the 13th century, in his rebuilding of Westminster Abbey, and he spent a lot of money on refurbishing and um, expanding it. He did so in the years after English kings had lost possession of Normandy. And so governing as they did a rather smaller set of estates they needed to reposition their centre of gravity and reaffirm their status as kings of England. And one of the ways of doing that was to raise the status of the old English kings, and of course St Edward the Confessor was one of those. Henry III, of course, was not the only English king to promote the, the, the cult of a particular saint. Another famous one and you might say, but I'm really hesitant about doing this because you never know when somebody who's a particular devotee of a particular saint's name might be in the audience. But Edward III, in the 14th century, in the context of his martial achievements against the French in the Hundred Years' War, promoted the cult of St. George and it's all very much tied up with his um, establishment of a round table at Windsor Castle and the foundation of the Order of the Garter. And I think, and recent royal births may bear me out, that the, 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 the cult of St. George is, uh, has, has kind of lived on, whereas the cult of St. Edward the Quest Confessor has been more modest in, its, um, in, in, in the way it's, it's caught on. Anyway. So my, my point is that the, 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 the creation and promotion of the celebration of a saint was a political act, and you could make choices. And of course, popes made choices about who was canonized, and only the pope could actually canonize somebody. There were a number of would-be saints in later medieval England, um, Edward II, who was deposed, his enemy, Thomas of Lancaster, they were both, you know, at stage one of working towards a canonization. Henry VI, very saintly, but never quite made it. And of course, you'd, if you were promoting the cause of uh, a canonization, you would collect stories of miracles that had happened as a result of the intervention of the saint. And it's because of this wonderful, um, or wonderful, <laughs> may not be quite the right word, because of this desire to, uh, to, to, to promote the, the, um, the cult of particular saints, it's as a result of that that we have so many chronicles and biographies of medieval people. The difficulty for us is picking out the something called the truth, which historians used to believe in, um, <laughs> from the embellishments. If people believed all of it, though, those boundaries are perhaps very blurred.
as time went on in the later Middle Ages, uh, festivities and rituals associated with church feast days tended to become more elaborate. After the Reformation of the 16th century, a chap called Roger Martin uh, looked back over his long life and remembered the things that had happened in his church before the Reformation. Uh, this is Long Melford um, in East Anglia, and he talks about processions on Palm Sunday, Corpus Christi, St. Mark's Day, Rogation Day, St. James's Day. And, of course, particular parishes would have had special celebrations associated with the saint to whom their church was dedicated. The Feast of Corpus Christi, uh, the Body of Christ, uh, was, was a later medieval feast, and it tended to be very strongly celebrated in late medieval towns. And there was a lot of pageantry and feasting and plays and processions. And the craft guilds would play a particular part in those celebrations. There were also celebrations around the, if you like, the, the vital events of this life um, and rituals. One, baptism. Two, marriage. And three, death. Um, they were a way of people uh, giving those vital events spiritual significance. Baptism took place very soon after a child was born, so soon that the mother did not attend the baptism because she couldn't enter into the church until after she herself had been purified about six weeks after the baby was born. The idea was that you would have a baptism very quickly in case the child were to die and forego its chances of going to heaven. But baptism also made you a member of your local community. And one source that um, another book, or at least another article I'd love to write about, uh, I'm studying medieval inquisitions, which it sounds like the Spanish Inquisition, but nothing so exciting as that. Uh, one, one kind of inquisition was into people's age. Not everybody knew how old they were in the Middle Ages, which must have taken a lot of pressure off, really. Uh, <laughs> but not so good for cosmetic companies. Uh, the, the way you prove that somebody was old enough to inherit their estates is that you would have an inquisition among local people, and they would all say, oh, yes, I remember... Uh, 21 years ago last Tuesday, and the child was born into the church by its godparents, and then the, they gave the feast of, they gave a, a silver bell to so-and-so, and they gave six and eightpence to the, uh, the wet nurse, and all this sort of thing. But it was the key moment that kind of, that, that people remembered, um, that, that, that made new members of the community part of it. Marriage, another key moment. This is a very famous marriage, the marriage of Henry V with Catherine of Valois that changed the course of history, for a bit anyway. Um, very solemn moment. Not everybody was actually married in church in the Middle Ages. There were such things as clandestine marriage, 
marriages uh, whereby you would just speak the words of consent to one another. But the church was very keen to encourage uh, marriage to take place with the blessing of the church itself. So you would you would go through a ceremony at the church door, at the porch, which is why so many of our churches have got elaborate porches, <laughs> so that you wouldn't get wet while you were doing it. And then you would go in and you would have your nuptial mass. And then there would be the blessing of the marriage bed. And uh, marriages, at least among the, the, the wealthier sort of people, would be celebrated uh, very elaborately. We've got a wonderful book which is the set of instructions from somebody called the Good Man of Paris. He's a citizen of Paris and he takes to wife a woman much younger than himself. She is in her teens we think and he is getting on a bit. So I don't know if it would be a very good practice now when one to uh, write a book of instructions for one's spouse on the occasion of one's marriage. It might be taken the wrong way because there are things on uh, moral behavior, how to behave chastely in public, how to look after your husband, uh, how to manage servants and the house and garden. And there are lots and lots of recipes and menus. So it's sort of like a Mrs. Beaton in the Middle Ages. Anyway, there's, there's, there's one menu for a wedding that takes place on a Tuesday in May. And all the different courses for the wedding feast are set out. Pottages, roast, um, little things to have in between courses, dessert, issue, which seems to be the kind of winding up. And then there's something called Sally Forth, which is... <laughs> I like that. I'll organize that at my next dinner party. We'll have the Sally Forth now. <laughs> And that's wine and spices as you, as you progress to the next stage. And they seem to have concluded with dancing and singing um, and spiced wine, all in torchlight. And he tells this poor young woman, uh, his wife, uh, all the various places in Paris where she's meant to go shopping, uh, or, or at least send somebody else to go shopping for all the different supplies, and how much to pay for them. Uh, all the staff that had to be brought in for the occasion, because you wouldn't have, you know, a whole army of people that were your regular servants, so you'd hire them just for the occasion of the wedding. And for, for people to purchase all this stuff in the Paris markets and uh, to people, for, for people to serve at the table. And I liked it because it included a big, strong sergeant to guard the doors. <laughs> Practically all the servants hired for this, this special occasion turn out to be men, but there's a woman and she is a chaplet maker. So she makes special headdresses um, for the occasion. And she's got to deliver the garlands on the eve of the wedding and on, and on the day. And she's got to make provision of tapestries and it says to order and spread them and in a special to light the chamber and the bed that is to be blessed. So that's the concluding part of the marriage feast, that the bride and groom will be then in a blessed bed. So enough said on that. Burials, the third of the sort of vital events, or religious events surrounding vital events, so at the time of your death, or before, if you were organized, or knew it was going to happen, um, 
wealthier people would arrange in their will for their own commemoration. It might not only be in their will, they, they might even before that do it. And a key thing to organize, apart from the arrangements for your funeral, would be longer term prayers for your soul after you died. And a very important doctrine in the medieval church was the doctrine of purgatory. And it was first made official in 1274 at the Second General Council of the Church. It, but people had known about it, it had been in church writings for a very long time, but this kind of promotes it even more. And the idea is that your soul will pass through a period of cleansing before it's allowed to go to heaven. Now some people think this was a dreadful wheeze <laughs> on the part of the medieval church because um, it was a way of getting people's money off them in the form of endowments to the church in order to secure prayers. On the other hand, perhaps many people didn't presume to think that they were quite good enough yet to go to heaven, but were hoping like mad that they hadn't been bad enough to go to hell. So that actually left quite a lot of people in the middle, hoping that God would be merciful and that they hadn't been really too bad, but expecting, you know, um, at least to have some time in purgatory. And this is your way of shortening your time, to have the prayers of other people uh, to help you. Psychologically, to be able to pray for your loved ones was a way of coping with bereavement. For you, it might be a way of preparing for death and be able to, enabling you to manage that process more easily if, as some people did, they knew that they were going to die. So, of course, the richer you were, the higher status you were, the more elaborate your arrangements um, for remembrance might be. Up until the 13th century, the main sort of provider of prayers for the dead, for the wealthy, were the monasteries. But it became increasingly popular, fashionable, attractive, to establish what was called a chantry. So that is a special provision, sometimes in a parish church, um, sometimes in a cathedral, sometimes even in your castle chapel, uh, to, to, to pay somebody to say prayers for you specially. Or you could found a whole Oxford or Cambridge college, which became very fashionable in the later Middle Ages. Um, no names will be mentioned, but uh, several results from that. More modestly, you could just pay a fee to a priest every year to remember you uh, in, in the saying of prayers. And that would pay, take place just in, in your parish church. But as I say, for the, for the wealthier, the arrangements could be rather elaborate. This is a, a late medieval church, it's U Elm in South Oxfordshire, and it's particularly famous and handy for medievalists because Alice Chaucer, granddaughter of Geoffrey Chaucer, um, founded an almshouse and a school and refurbished the church. And this is she, in all her glory, all her earthly glory, um, in the tomb on the altar where she is hoping <laughs> that everybody will remember her as she was in life and note the, um, the hands clasped in prayer. But what is extraordinary to see 
there is that on the top and underneath <coughs> there is something that you can't get a very good picture of but this is she in death so not only is she asking that others remember her as she was in life but that she she's also inviting others to think this is what you will be like in death memento mori one of my um, I would say favourite characters one of my intriguing characters in the middle ages is somebody called Edmund Earl of Cornwall and I've talked about him on a number of occasions so I'll keep this quick because actually I think everybody else finds him quite boring um, because he, he, doesn't, he doesn't distinguish himself in battle he's got absolutely loads of dosh but he doesn't really seem to do anything he doesn't produce any children he doesn't get on with his wife I suppose not getting on with your wife is you know well um, <laughs> one thing he does do so this is the bit that kind of makes him redeems him is that he he he's got this special devotion to the cult of St. Edmund of Abingdon. So this is Edmund, St. Edmund, who becomes Archbishop of Canterbury in the 13th century. And Edmund, our Edmund, boring Edmund, is named after him. And so he picks up and runs with this and decides to establish chantries um, in honour of, of his favourite saint. And one of them is in Abingdon. And he actually bought this piece of property in Abingdon. It's between the Thames and St. Helens Church. So anybody who's from Abingdon that thinks you've found it, please email me, because um, I couldn't. They say he buys this place where St. Edmund is thought to have been born, and he, he literally builds a, a, a chapel there and gets the abbot of Abingdon to arrange to have priests to celebrate masses every day for the praise of God, the honour of St. Edmund, and the soul of the Earl and his ancestors. So that's so Edmund picks a particular narrative moment in the life of his favourite saint, the moment of his birth, and builds on it literally. And then he also uh, establishes a chantry at Salisbury. Um, he, Edmund, Saint Edmund, before he became Archbishop of Canterbury, had been treasurer of Salisbury. According to contemporary sources, he hadn't actually been a great treasurer because he didn't actually like doing account work very much. <laughs> he liked being a scholar and a, uh, a clergyman better. Um, anyway, so Edmund gives the dean and uh, canons at Salisbury um, lands in, in one of his manors and the idea is that they're going to celebrate his St. Edmund's anniversary um, sorry, they're going to celebrate Edmund of Cornwall's anniversary and they're going to write a story of the life of St. Edmund and sing it uh, during his own lifetime it's going to be to, on, the, on the anniversary of his father's death and when he himself dies it's going to be on the anniversary of his own death what struck me quite interestingly was that in none of these arrangements did he say anything about the soul of his poor wife, which is a bit of a hint that they were not getting on and they were formally separated. Um, so I thought to kind of remedy that, that I ought to tell you about another medieval marriage where they did get on. And, it's, and because it's so local to here, or at least part of the visual culture is so local to here, Edward I... I made the mistake once north of the border of saying what a wonderful king he'd been. Whoops. Um, <laughs> Battle of Bannockburn coming up. Uh, Edward I, he, he and his wife were 
famously devoted to one another. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture um, of Eleanor of Castile in her youth, I think, because she, she famously produced something like 15 children during her marriage to Edward I. But when she died in 1290, he was so overcome that he arranged for a whole series of crosses to be erected in her memory at all the places where her funeral cortege passed. Uh, she died in Lincolnshire, and then she was brought down to London to be buried. And some of the places where her where she spent, the, her funeral cortege spent the night, are commemorated in name, like Cher Rennes or Charing Cross. Um, and this is one of the images from Waltham Cross, and this is one at Jeddington in Northamptonshire. And then we have remembered this amazing um, series of statue, statues in something here in Oxford which is, as you, I'm sure, realise, it's a 19th century replica of something along the lines of the Eleanor Crosses, but celebrating the martyrs who were um, martyred nearby in what is now Broad Street. So you can go and look at this if you haven't seen it already. So even now we're remembering the Middle Ages, isn't it great? Lots of people, though, couldn't afford to do this sort of thing. Um, for those who couldn't afford to pay individually to be remembered, there, were, there was a solution. There were the medieval guilds, and they were voluntary associations. Um, and you, you paid a little fee to the guild every year, and then the other members of the guild would have to turn up to your funeral and would have to arrange to pay for masses for you afterwards. But it's a kind of... Um, I won't say an insurance policy, but it, you know, it's a kind of friendly society. You all buy into it and you all look after each other. So I've talked about rituals and celebrations around your baptism, your marriage and your death. Then there were also celebrations surrounding the change in your status in your public life. Now, one that you will think of is perhaps the dubbing, the ceremony of dubbing somebody a knight. Another one is the, uh, the ceremony of coronation. And we have a lot of records about uh, how, how coronations occurred and their, their spiritual significance. Because it's true that a lot of medieval office holding, a lot of people's public role, their integrity was underpinned by the taking of an oath of office, which is a sacred thing. But it's only, it, there's the ceremony of knighthood, but it's only the king whose actual public office um, is, is conferred by a spiritual act in a church, and usually in Westminster Abbey. Um, you have to be crowned by the... You have to be anointed with holy oil. You're crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Once a king is crowned, there is... I won't say there's no turning back, because I'm sure that those of you who know the Middle Ages will know that there were plenty of occasions where kings who had been crowned were uncrowned um, or got rid of. But it did help enormously to consolidate your position and at, at, at times of political uncertainty between reigns um, 
the crowning of the new king would really help to consolidate his position. One special example is when Henry III, King Henry III, he was only nine when King John died unexpectedly in 1216. And so Henry, London was uh, being occupied by the French and so Westminster was out of the question and a lot of parts of the country were, were, were really unstable. So Henry is crowned at Gloucester Abbey and then it's only later that he is crowned again in Westminster but it's that very special moment and you have to get it right. One of the reasons why Thomas Beckett uh, and Henry II fell out was one of the things that made the quarrel worse but Henry II wanted to crown his own son during his own lifetime to secure the succession and because he quarrelled with Beckett he had the Archbishop of York do the ceremony very awkward kings would also the moment of coronation when it, and you will remember this from uh, things like the, 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 the golden jubilee and royal weddings at those moments Simon Sharma who you know historians love him but they're also a bit jealous this is quite famous um, he said when William and Kate um, got married he said it's a moment of something like of remarrying um, between between the state and um, between the monarchy and, and, and the people as well as between those two um, but you, there are only these certain state occasions when that, that, that strengthening of the relationship happens. Uh, but kings can create extra special moments, and Richard II was one who was very good at this. He would have special crown-wearing occasions when he would have his royal court, and they all be having dinner, and then do the dinner, and then he would kind of go off into like a state where he'd wear his crown and kind of look solemnly at everybody but nobody was allowed to speak to him so he's kind of, I wish I'd got one now putting on that aura of kingship and look at him there this is Richard II that huge portrait at, in the nave in Westminster Abbey and so you can imagine that that's the sort of person that engages in these, these crown wearing ceremonies there are also occasions like the, um, the solemn entrance of a king into, into his capital city. Richard famously quarreled with the city of London and when they made it up, he organized this kind of elaborate state visit back to the capital. And Henry V, famously after his victories in France, staged these arrivals, sort of like a Roman emperor coming back to um, coming back to Rome after, after a victory. They didn't build a triumphal arch, but they had these amazing processions. And of course, Henry V, uh, according to many of his biographies at least, quite the master of political spin. You know, if you, it's good to win a battle, but very good to be able to make sure that everybody knows how successful you've been and that it was really because of God's grace that you managed it. So don't overplay your own role. Kings and nobility didn't just um, 
live in the capital, of course, and this is a, you know, perhaps an interesting feature of way the, the, the way the, the role of the capital has developed over time. You would travel around the country um, and you would visit towns and towns would welcome you and it would be part of their their kind of sense of identity, their sense of status, to be able to do it really well. So when the king was about to arrive or had written in saying, I'm coming in two months' time, be ready, there would be a flurry of local activity, making sure that everybody was fully supplied, that they put on a pageantry, that they <coughs> there was wine to buy, and hopefully to buy and not just uh, take, as king's households tended to do. It is interesting to observe these these um, welcomings as part, uh, as ways in which towns would um, seek to enhance their own status and their self-importance and their identity. What they would also do is stage events around the pageant, the, the, the feasts of the church, and a particularly important one was Corpus Christi, as I've already said. Uh, but, but it didn't have to be Corpus Christi; it didn't have the only. Corpus Christi. Aberdeen is a place I've done quite a lot of research on, and the special feast there was Candlemas Day, uh, otherwise known as the Feast of the Purification of the Virgin, which is the 2nd of February. Now, why they picked on a day in February to have a massive public celebration, and especially when you have lived in Aberdeen in the wintertime, I don't know, but that's what they did. Um, and on the occasion of, and perhaps it was something to do with the weather, because the, the, the town register, its, its records of its, um, of its local government, uh, they, they, they have a kind of flurry of activity around the 2nd of February and, and, and instructing all the craftsmen as to what they've got to do uh, to add to the occasion or to make the occasion. So... Um, in 1485, for example, the town council said all the, other, all the craftsmen in the town have to be part of the procession, they have to wear their badges, got my badge, um, they have to wear their badges of their craft on their breast, um, they have to wear their best clothes uh, for the purpose of the pageant. And if they don't, they won't be allowed to trade for a year. So it's really an obligation. It's also an occasion where the crafts, the different craftsmen can kind of play out their rivalries because the order in which you're allowed to process your, your, your place relative to the other craftsmen is an indication of the status of your craft in relation to the others. So it's, it's all set out uh, in a sort of protocol that everybody's got to follow, perhaps to avoid fights breaking out. Uh, so all the leather workers process together and the textile workers go together. Uh, when I say textile workers, that's because I've only got something like five minutes left. Um, when I say textile workers, that's walkers and fullers and weavers and dyers. So all those different craftspeople. And then, having done this procession, then they have to contribute to the cost of providing costumes for the play. I was so desperate to work out what play they were putting on. So again, email me afterwards, because it, it broke down in the records, the, the costumes. So there was, going, there was going to be a part for The Messenger, Simeon, 
the three kings of Cologne, that one's easy, the emperor, the three knights, Our Lady, St. Bridget, and St. Helen. So it's going to be quite a long play to kind of fit in all these different parts. And as, as many of you will know, um, later medieval plays took the story uh, the, the story from, uh, of the Bible from creation right through to the life of Christ and the crucifixion. So this looks, you know, definite elements of the nativity there and the presentation in the temple, but I haven't worked all of it out. So these play cycles, these, these pageantries, were also an opportunity for creativity. Again, some of you will have read medieval mystery plays. And in Aberdeen, again, I'm always plugging the case of Aberdeen, um, they actually funded the special writing of a play. Somebody got five shillings for writing a play in 1449. Another way in which these plays kind of um, built up urban identities is I've mentioned about the procession and passing one, from one place to another. So as many people as possible could see the pageantry. It wasn't in one fixed place. You would travel and do different parts in different parts of the town. And some of the characters that are based on biblical characters are drawn or created in, the, in these scripts or in the plays to be a little like medieval people. So Noah's wife um, doesn't have a massive part in the Bible, but she does in the, in the mystery play, because she won't get in the ark, because she's so busy talking to her friends, and Noah has to kind of go, will you get in the ark? And so you can imagine all these townswomen saying, well, I wouldn't be getting in. He said that last week about the weather. <laughs> Especially in Aberdeen. <laughs> February. Expenditure on food and drink when we're trying to think about what people might have eaten. I know I'm running out of time. Talked about food a little bit. At times of we know most about uh, what the aristocracy eat at times of great feasts and there are certain foods particularly associated with high status people. I'm sure you can imagine what it is. They drink more wine, they eat more meat, and they eat more spice, and they eat more sweets. Um, the lower status people are on high carb diets with more vegetables. What's interesting is that as well as eating more at times of great feasts, um, they will eat more, the, the, the nobility and the, the highly placed bishops and so on will eat a greater, the, 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 more posh food and more of it, even if it's expensive and even if it's out of season, which is an interesting thing. Uh, one fascinating thing I am doing at the moment, well, fascinating is an interesting word. Uh, I'm, I'm working out the price of salmon in the 1340s. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And at certain times of year, I've got to share this with you, salmon is more expensive, um, and I'm not sure if it's because everybody wants some because it's in Lent, or if it's because of um, the particular way salmon you know, travel up rivers. Anyway, the, uh, the answer will soon be out there. Um, so feasting, um, expensive food, more of it, ritual eating, um, at table. Um, 
we've, we've got loads of medieval recipes for especially elaborate feasts. At the coronation feast of Henry VI in 1429, um, the, the, the menu is set out, and one item is, um, it's, it's a jelly, and what you've got to do is write on the jelly. Has anyone ever tried to write on jelly? Te Deum Laudamus, because it's a coronation. As well as the actual food associated with feastings, um, you've got all the... I just thought I couldn't resist that because I've never been able to work out quite what that animal is on the uh, left-hand side. This is preparation of all that meat. As well as the actual food that you would eat, there's um, the rituals of washing, of service at table, uh, saying grace, distribution of alms, the, uh, giving the leftovers to the poor, giving money to the poor at times of great feasts is something households do. Uh, where, you, where you sat in relation to everybody else was very much linked to your social status. After uh, or even during the meal, there might be uh, acrobatics, there might be singing, there might be recitation, might be playing of instruments, all sorts of things, but very much open to the head of the household to decide. And on the great occasions of the year, there would be giving and receiving of presents. And this, I think, is quite interesting because we do have uh, some indication of what presents great people gave to each other. Eleanor of Castile, the lady who was the object of Edward I's very proper devotion, uh, gave rosaries to all her household members um, one Christmas. And this seems to be because she was particularly devoted to the order of Dominicans, the Dominican friars, who were in turn uh, very keen on promoting the cult of the Virgin Mary and saying the rosary is, a, is, is particularly a prayer, a repeated and ritual prayer to the Virgin Mary. And then later on, in a rather different world, Margaret Beaufort, um, mother of Henry VII. She was a great patron of literature, and so she gave books to all her household members, which she'd specially commissioned. Now, I'm running out of time, so I will draw this to a close and give you time for any questions that you may have. But I could go on for ages, and actually I did cut some bits out, but they were... Anyway. Um, Religious rituals, uh, it's the idea of repeating actions and by the very repetition in the same way, they, they acquire an extra meaning. And for most people, doing things repeatedly was very much part of life. Um, at a time when 90% of people lived in the countryside, the repeated actions associated with agricultural production would have been utterly second nature to them. Everybody even if they don't live in the countryside, depends on the success of the harvest. So the cycle of the seasons is absolutely part of life, and mirroring that are the seasons of the church. And it's not surprising that Lent falls at a time just before, uh, or early spring, um, when food is scarce. It's not surprising that Christmas happens when people have got to spend more time inside and when you've just had to kill off a lot of your animals um, because you can't afford to feed them through the winter.
baptism and burial mark your entry and your departure from the world. I think all of these things are, are important because life was so precarious in the Middle Ages, particularly for children. High infant mortality is, is, is absolutely established throughout the medieval period. And even when you're grown up, there's a higher death rate from disease or war or lack of food. And there's very little insurance for most people against failure of crops or flooding or whatever the weather might do. So I think that the framework of the certainty that was offered by ritual feasting, commemoration, uh, is an essential way in which people manage those uncertainties. Perhaps in a time of greater security of life, it's possible for us to be uh, more individual about the choices we make, about the ways in which we celebrate. But what I also wanted to say, because I don't want you to go away thinking that I think um, that medieval life was all about just repeating the same old thing year after year. What I did find when researching this for today was that so many of the examples I had were where people had taken an established ritual and had made it their own. And indeed, it seems that ritual in the Middle Ages created the environment in which scholarship was supported, creativity was supported, and it was very much, what you did on a given occasion was very much a matter of individual choice. So the ritual gives you the structure, and it's for you to make what you can of it. The end. Thank you. There's not one question. Does anybody know about salmon fishing? There's a lady here. I what you mentioned the text of the Good Man of Paris? Yes. It's called, um, it's edited, or it's translated into English by Eileen Power. And I think it's called The Good Man of Paris. And you can buy it if you want to, and I would definitely recommend it. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say that the festival on February the 2nd is common in other countries interesting. That is interesting. Yes, a non-Christian context. But it did fascinate me because um, it's, it's usually Corpus Christi that's so big, but Aberdeen went in for Candlemas for reasons I'm not clear about. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Cheer themselves up. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for coming.